Good morning. Uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Josh for keeping the door unlocked and the lights on for me. Um, I uh, always enjoy coming here. I have brought some of my books uh, with me this morning, and they're free for the taking. Um, if, uh, boy, that was underwhelming, your response. <clears throat> Uh, if you're not if you're not a reader, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who do not read. Um, take one and give it to someone. All right. Uh, I I think um, they would benefit from it. I, I want you to turn with me to gospel to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, and uh, we're going to read a story that is found in all four Gospels. It's the only miracle that Jesus performed that is in all four Gospels. And that's very telling in and of itself. Uh, I think probably in the beginning I should say that, uh, in my opinion, that this text actually teaches itself. So I'm going to read something to you that uh, I'm sure is almost worn smooth with familiarity beginning in verse 13 of Matthew 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, he would withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go to the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those that ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and children. Now, I, I know, again, this is a, a very familiar text to most everyone here in this room. I returned to it just a few weeks ago uh, to discover something that I had overlooked. And I want you to understand that my intention is not to sound like I have mastery over what I want to talk to you about. That's not my intention at all. I, I'd like to invite you, as humbly as I know how, into my learning experience and my learning curve continues to be rather steep. After six decades on this planet, I'm beginning to discover some things about God and his universe that I wished I had known many, many years ago. So what I am here to talk to you about is the story of abundance and the myth of scarcity. This is essentially is what is happening in this passage of Scripture, and it probably sounds rather ludicrous for me to suggest that scarcity is a myth, that lack 
is a lie. But before you tune me out, let me propose a few things to you. I've been saying this a lot lately in my travels, and I think it's appropriate here as I'm talking to you about the story of abundance and the, the myth of scarcity. It seems to me, and I don't want to, I don't want for this to sound like it's a hard volley across the net since we're in this time now when the U.S. Open is taking place. Uh, so I'm not firing a hard serve at you here, but I do believe, unfortunately, that we're living in times where the media is more responsible for discipling the church than the gospel is. I, I don't mean for that to sound like so much browbeating, but I think you catch my drift when I say that. See, the whole world runs on story. You do realize that, don't you? That when you go to sleep tonight, when I go to sleep tonight, the system that we live in that is so subtle and so covert is already crafting a story so that when you wake up in the morning, they have decided what you should pay attention to. Does that make sense to you? They have created a, an idea that they want you to fixate, even obsess over. Essentially, see, there's two kinds of wisdom that are always in play. The conventional wisdom. Everybody say conventional wisdom. Now, what is conventional wisdom? Conventional wisdom is what is the accepted truth or reality by the populace, what everybody else is hearing. It's what is buzzing. And the more we hear it, the more we believe it. Are you still with me? But there is an alternative wisdom, and that's really what Jesus came to do and is continuing to do. And this alternative wisdom is rather, rather subversive in nature. It does not comply with the social norms. It does not fall in line with the reality that we've been presented with. Now, some of you may be wondering what on earth this has to do, this alternative wisdom, and what Jesus does here in the miracle of the multiplication. It's my intention to address that with you here this morning. But before I do, I think... Um, if I can add a little levity, maybe just a little levity to what I have to share with you. Most of us live with basically first world problems. And that's an oxymoron, isn't it? Like hidden in plain sight. Um, really, we do live with first world problems. And what we are reading here in this text in Matthew 14 is not a first world problem, it was essentially a third world problem. What do I mean by that when I talk about first world problems? All right, it kind of goes like this. The new iPhone has come out, and I really want it badly, but I'm stuck in my contract, and so I'm going to have to use this last year's model like a caveman until my contract is up. I'm just so tired of eating at all the restaurants that are within driving distance of my house. Oh no, the pizza delivery man can't find my house with his GPS, so I'm going to have to stand in the yard like an idiot to wave him down. On and on it goes, right? 
I mean, I am convicted by that on a daily basis. You know, uh, when I am delayed for a flight and it's almost as if, you know, I, sometimes I realize just how self-absorbed I am when I become irritated by people that are self-absorbed. <laughs> and I hope you don't feel like that's so much false humility. I'm convicted by that on a continual basis. It happened to me on the freeway coming here this morning. It just seemed that nobody seemed to realize that I was on the way to do something important. <laughs> now, I think that the disciples missed a real teaching moment here as Jesus is, as Jesus is multiplying the loaves and the fishes. And I don't think it was necessarily so much about him having compassion, even though it's evident that he did have compassion on all these people whose stomachs were gnawing with hunger. I think that what Jesus was trying to do was shift the, cons the consciousness of, in particular, his disciples, his students, from the idea of scarcity to abundance. Are you still with me so far? I probably said this here before, but it bears repeating. What if Jesus doesn't test us to see what we've learned as if he doesn't already know, but he tests us to see if we're still willing to learn? And so, again, I, I, I want us to look at some of the overlooked aspects of this particular miracle. Did you happen to notice? And by the way, uh, whenever we read passages of Scripture like this, I mean, do, did, did you have a watch on me? Did, do you know how long it took me to read those few short verses? Just a, matter, just a matter of seconds, didn't it? I mean, it was certainly within inside of a minute it took me to read those verses. I think sometimes uh, we approach these passages presumptuously and we don't realize that even though we can read it that quickly, it might not have unfolded that quickly. And so... Here it says that they were in a desolate place. Did you notice that? There's something almost contradictory about it as far as I'm concerned because it says it was a desolate place, which should be a clue to us. But then when Jesus tells them to sit down, they are told to sit down on the grass. Now that causes some, somewhat of a query for me. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, what, what is this all about? The, you know, the writer said it was desolate, yet when they all sit down, they sit down on the grass. This should have, and this is, I believe, what Jesus was doing because, as you probably heard it said from this platform before, in many respects, at certain turns in Jesus' life, it became apparent to the disciples that Jesus was, in essence, the new Moses because of so many things that he did that did not necessarily contradict but fully completed what Moses had, had brought under, under the auspices of his ministry. Now, I want you to stay with me here because I think this gets really interesting and fascinating if you'll just give me a moment. I believe that probably what was going on here in this moment was that he was trying 
to summon from their collective consciousness, from their memory, something that hap had happened thousands of years prior. If we go back to the Exodus account, if we read, for example, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit, but if we read John chapter 6, John chapter 6, Jesus, when, he, when this story is told, Jesus tells them later on, he said, I am the bread that your fathers ate in the wilderness. You do remember that, don't you? Maybe Jesus is trying to cause them to remember something that was a part, again, I use this term collective consciousness because there are certain things that are latent in your mind and in my mind that are waiting to be awakened. And I'm not talking about something that you've learned. I'm not talking about something you've been taught. I'm talking about something that supersedes that, that is there. It's what you know that you don't know that you know until you need to know it. Now, I've already heard in a lot of the admonition and exhortation that was given during the worship time, you know, so many different things that is resonating with what I came to talk to you about. So do you think Jesus was trying to remind them of what we read about in Exodus chapter 16? They are not long removed from Egypt, right? And in Exodus chapter 16, here is a group that transcends this number of approximately 15,000. And you notice it said women, or it just numbered the men and the women, uh, the men and did not number the women and the children. So, I mean, it would be safe to say that this is an estimate of 15,000 people. But we go back to Exodus chapter 16, we're talking about this multiplied even more. They're millions, aren't they? And you know the story all too well. I won't insult your intelligence. They are extremely hungry. And then what does God do? <clears throat> he causes this manifestation. We all know what this manifestation is, or we think we do. I mean, there was not any way to analyze it to really conclude the nature of this substance called manna. That's why they called it manna. It simply means what is it, right? What is this? And the interesting thing about it is that it distilled during the night so that when they woke up in the morning, everything that they needed for that particular day was readily available and accessible. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time in the book of Exodus there to make my point, but you probably also remember that they were given instruction that they were to collect every man according to his own appetite, so to speak, and they were not to conserve or try to preserve any of it, because if they attempted to hoard, what would happen? It would spoil. I wonder sometimes if we really understand the connection between this mentality of scarcity and understanding continual, perpetual abundance. Now, what was he trying to shift in their consciousness as he was with his disciples. Well, they're coming out of four centuries, almost four centuries of slavery. Well, what precipitated the slavery? You know the story, of course, from Exodus. What, what, what brought all this slavery on? Well, in order to understand it in its broader context, especially what am I talking to you about? The story of abundance and the myth of scarcity. 
in, to understand it in its broader context, I have to go all the way back to the Genesis. I have to go all the way back to how God generated everything. And when we read the creation account, it should be obvious to us, but quite often it's not. There is this continual reference to the goodness of God and fruitfulness and multiplication. Did you notice that? Everything that God spoke to, inherent in it, was the ability to multiply itself. So much so that when he spoke that in the cradle of civilization, in the, in the beginning of time as we know it, it has not lost its efficacy or its ability to continue to reproduce. I, you know, sometimes I don't think we understand this as we should. I know. Remember I told you I'm here as a student learning with you? When I drove here this morning, when you drove here this morning, you drove through lavish abundance. See, we've got to understand this. I, I think it was St. Francis that said this. Uh, if my quote reference is wrong, that's okay. What I'm after here is what he said. He said, God's original language was creation. It was not man's language crafted about him, but God originally began to reveal and manifest himself through the creation. That is so incredibly profound as far as I'm concerned because we, because of the monotony and because of the mundane nature of our routine in our lives, we don't realize, as Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, that heaven, that earth is crammed with heaven and every bush is burning if we can just take our shoes off. Abundance is everywhere. But again, the system is always reminding us that, that there's not enough. We're running out. When you look at your bank statement every month, see, I, I hope this is helping you because the three times that I've talked about this, it, I've walked away ministered to myself. When I look at what I have in comparison to what I need, am I connecting with anybody? My mind is always wired to gravitate toward that which I don't have. Or in the words of the disciples, what are these among so many? See, the truth is, all of us, to some degree, are practical atheists. Either God is infinite or he's not. I'll say that again. Either he's infinite or he's not. And the word infinite is difficult for us to understand. But let me just approach it, you know, from a, a scientific standpoint, which I, you know, this is way above my pay grade. So this is a big reach for me, all right? But I do remember enough from school to understand that the universe is expanding at 186,000 miles per second. I do believe in the creation account, but I also understand that scientists have made it clear based on that formula that there was something that happened before this material universe began to become visible to the naked eye. And that would mean that the universe is over 13 
billion years old. How do they know that? Because they can look with the telescopes that reach the furthest edges of the galaxies that we are able to perceive. And they know that the light coming from there took that many years to get into our realm where we can see it and perceive it. What is my point? Because when God said, let there be light, it has continued to expand. It's continued to multiply. Somehow, God has to bring such a shift in our thinking where we stop looking at what we don't have and we start looking at the ocean of abundance that we are swimming in. It is not about you not having enough intelligence, enough training. It is not, are you listening to me at all? It is not about you not having the right opportunity. It is not about you made a bad deal, a bad decision, and you can't ever seem to recover. Really, it has to do with you turning. Remember, what you focus on determines what you miss. Turning from that to the incredible, immeasurable, infinite nature of God's abundance. And I promise you, I don't care what you're concluding about what I'm saying, especially in terms of a secular interpretation. This is what Jesus demonstrated for them in that moment. I get so weary of people whenever they hear the word faith taught about, how that they seem to come under the crushing weight of condemnation. And they don't realize that Jesus, um, they, so many of the teachings of Jesus about faith are taken totally out of context. I think probably one of the most telling teachings of Jesus about faith was when he talked about how little it takes to do something insurmountable. You all know it well. You're ahead of me that if you have the faith as a grain of mustard seed, this infinitesimal seed that you could, I mean, it could get stuck to your sweaty palm and be there all day long and you wouldn't even be aware of it. It's so incredibly small. And in hyperbolic terms, Jesus says, if you had a faith like that, you could say to that mountain, there must have been a ripple of laughter that swept through his audience when he said that because he is comparing that which is minuscule to that which is almost infinite in nature. And he says, that's all it takes to move that. I get tired of the top these testimony services that you go to where everybody seems to try to be topping someone else and they don't understand that it really has to do with you recognizing what you have. This is what Jesus is trying to do with the disciples. He's trying to shift their understanding. If Jesus is, and we, um, I mean, this is just a rhetorical question. If Jesus is the word made flesh, he is, right? And Colossians says, by him all things consist. And if I connect the dots and I go back to Genesis, I understand that what happened in the Genesis narrative that gives us the creation account and all of its infinity and its abundance, then understand that he spoke that. He is the word that brought that into existence, right? And it continues to multiply. In just a few weeks, the leaves are going to turn. 
And I love it up here in this part of the country. The, the colors are just so vivid, aren't they? Bright red and mauve and yellow. I mean, it's like you get up one morning after going to bed the night before and you get up and it's almost like God has had this giant palette out painting the leaves. It's gorgeous, isn't it? But they let go, don't they? They let go because they know where they came from. I hope you're connecting this. I hope you're understanding. I, 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 what I'm trying to do in, in, at this stage in my life is to shift the story for myself. I found myself, if you allow me to get personal with you, I found myself just in the last few months beginning to fixate over losses. And I've had my share. Some of you might be thinking, well, it's nothing like mine. It's all relative. A loss is a loss. Really? I mean, just the desire to want to compare yours to mine proves that there's something wrong in your thinking still. And I began to realize how that for all these years that I was constantly keeping a running ledger in my mind, thinking that it was really being a responsible man, this was really a noble thing for me to do. Even had had this mantra for a long time, and as I'm driving up the road this morning, was reminded of it, that I would cry out to God for years and say, all I want to do, all I want to do is provide for my family. That sounds rather noble, doesn't it? Really, it is... It resonates with the sound of scarcity. All I want to do is provide for my family. And then I began to see that what Jesus is doing here for, the, for this, these disciples is trying to take them back to something that he did in the Exodus and to understand that when we are operating in scarcity and we're wanting to hold on to what we have, and you see, I'm not trying to come around the back door here with, with some message because I know that a lot of people have been jaded by a gospel that's called a prosperity gospel. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm talking about a lifestyle. I'm talking about understanding that right here, Within your reach is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. That doesn't just have eschatological implications. It has existential implications. It's right here, right now. So he's taking them back to that. It may not be that apparent in the reading of the text, but maybe he's trying to awaken something, trigger something in their mind that causes them to rehearse or to rehear or to re-see or to remember the legacy, the history of how he had provided. It's already been said here this morning. The value of testimony. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time there, you know, going through especially some of the really powerful passages in the Old Testament about the value of testimony other than to say this, 
Inherent in the word testimony is the ability to reproduce or replicate it every time. Now, let me tell you what I've been doing lately ever since this shift has started taking place for me. It really is God's ultimate law of attraction. It really, really is. Is that I've gone back over 41 years and begun to catalog from the smallest, even some might think trivial things, to the monumental things that he's done in my life, knowing that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, knowing that in doing that, if I focus on abundance, then scarcity is totally displaced. Is it that simple? It really is. It really is. I love, uh, if you'll permit me, I love what C.S. Lewis says about this miracle, and he's not trying to minimize the, you know, the weight of this miracle. But he said, if you will consider this for a moment, and I, I think this will, you'll find some relevance in this. He said, if you'll consider what happened, the context of this particular miracle, Jesus was in close proximity to the Sea of Galilee, which was teeming with fish. And nearby, there were fields that were full of wheat. And so here he has five fish and two loaves. So what does he do with them if he is the creator? He was, he is, he always will be. He did not have to wait for the grains of wheat to fall into the ground, germinate, press up through the soil, reaching for the sun and the coming rain and for them to come to harvest so that they could be taken out of the field and processed into bread. He did not have to wait for the fish to spawn, to lay their eggs and for those fish to be mature enough to be caught in the nets of the fishermen to feed them. All he did was he took time out of the equation. And you say, well, how do I do that? You know, because some of you right now in the next 30 days, in the next 60 days or whatever, see, that is what is holding you and I hostage in believing that time, come on, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That time is dictating to us when and if things will happen. Jesus, did you get that? Jesus just took time out of the equation. Maybe, is, is it possible that what you are interpreting right now as an impossible situation, as, as something that uh, you are, has made you painfully aware of what you lack, maybe what this is, is God's way of shifting your understanding. And call, you know, whenever Jesus says that you can't serve God and mammon, you'll love one or hate the other. I, I know this scripture has been overused, misused, and abused by so many. I get that. But I don't think that it was, you know, this, in this condemning tone, I think what he was trying to help them to understand is that we're constantly being pulled in that tension, aren't we? I've had seasons in my life when I have had six figures in my account. And even with having six-figure bank accounts, 
I still constantly in my mind, because I'm an overthinker, I'm way too analytical. It's, it can serve me well or it can beat the hell out of me a lot of times. And I'm, even though I'm flush, as they would say, I am constantly calculating how long it will last. Hence, I loved mammon. So what, what is the answer? What is, the, what is, you know, what are some of the answers to all of this? I think really a lot of it has to do with allowing him to do neurosurgery on us in a way, or as Paul would say, the renewing of the mind. And that's not going to, that's not something that's going to happen by an injection it's not something that's going to be happen just because somebody that you esteem or almost enamored with their gifting, they lay their hands on you. You know, you think your way into a new way of living, as one man said. And the more you think that this is a huge leap, that ought to be a clue to you that it is the way that you should walk in. It really is. I think for me, and I believe it will work for you, is that we begin to ask God, would you please make me more aware? Would you make me more of a noticer? What on earth are you talking about? My prayer for you is when you leave here this morning and you walk out, that you understand that creation is screaming at you. Abundance. Sometimes I think he lets, and he's done that with me just in the last few years. He's let me get to the place, and, and this, this <laughs> I should be a bit embarrassed for making this admission, but I'm not that you get to the place when you realize that God is all you have, that he is all you need. That sounds trivial, doesn't it? That sounds like a cop-out. No, it's really not. It's really not. Is it, is it preposterous for me to suggest to you that in a matter of days or even weeks that your whole story would turn from the myth of scarcity to the story of abundance. Is that possible? Do you also recognize that if you don't regularly have, and I know that there would be some that would push back on this, but if you don't regularly have impossible situations that you are being faced with, if you don't have it regularly, then that in itself excludes God's involvement in your life. Wisdom doesn't say, why is this happening to me? Wisdom says, what is this saying to me? I didn't ask if I was on the clock. Maybe I am here. But am I getting through to anybody here? This is the kind of economy that Jesus introduces them to. And did you notice his body language? It said he looked up to heaven. 
It's all about perspective, isn't it? It's, it's really true. The way you see things are not the way they are. It's just the way you see them. Maybe right now what is annoying you, what is irritating, frustrating you, that's right in front of you, uh, that is reminding you that you're not enough or that you lack or how am I going to, how am I going to make all this? Well, I'm telling you, if the math works, it excludes miracles. It excludes trust. Proverbs, you know it so well, or do you really? Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not. That's your natural leaning. That's your default setting. It is for all of us. Lean not to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he'll direct your path. Looking up to heaven. This is what he did. And I think, too, that, you know, as uh, Chesterton said, that an inconvenience is always an adventure misinterpreted. And at every turn of Jesus' life, it seemed that he was faced with an inconvenience. What is your inconvenience? What is the impossibility? What is the thing that is reminding you of what you lack? When you look at it, it ought to cause you to rejoice in everything. Not for, but in everything give thanks for. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. The wonderful thing about it is the, the writer didn't leave out what probably would seem to many to be unimportant to the whole scenario of the multiplication. They gathered up 12 baskets. Sometimes it's in the fragments that there is a greater miracle. What is my takeaway? What, what is my takeaway from this? Now, I'm not naive. I know that the people that I'm talking to this morning, even though I haven't, you know, I haven't vetted Josh on this, I, I know that the people I'm talking to this morning are facing, you know, some of you oppressive financial situations. I get that. Uh, probably single moms here or there are people that have lost their job or there are people, you know, I want to assure you too, for those of you that have made very poor and even foolish decisions with your money and you've gotten yourself in a situation where at the end of the month there's more month than there is money. And I, I know that, you know, what a lot of people would say concerning that, that, you know, you're going to have to walk through this and, you know, glean whatever wisdom necessary so that you don't say, make the same mistake again. But I believe that there's a way even to circumvent that. I actually believe that there's a way to circumvent that. It's when we begin to act as if he is all that he says he is. And what he meant when he said, I came that you might have life, not life after life. See, that's the two greatest lies that religion has ever told is distance and delay. 
If you, if you don't believe he's that generous, have you ever wondered why? Josh, will you and the team come back up? Have you ever wondered why that in Matthew, in, in chapter 25, it's the last few days of Jesus' life, and he's about to be crucified. The disciples can't quite wrap their mind around it. I'd like for the team to come, all right? And Jesus tells what seems to be a rather bizarre story. You would, you would think. You would think that he would have told this story two or three years prior. Why is he telling this rather unusual story in the days leading up to his execution? So in Matthew 25, he tells this story about this man who remains anonymous that is unbelievably wealthy. Are, have you already gone home or are you still listening to me? He's unbelievably wealthy and he takes three of his servants. You know it as the parable of the talents, right? He takes three of his servants and see, you got to understand just how irrational this was for the time. Totally irrational it was for the time. Because this man whether he had accumulated this volume of wealth through hook or crook, I don't know. <laughs> but apparently, he was extremely wealthy. And in order to get to that place, he had to be pretty savvy, right? So it sounds totally paradoxical for, for you to say that this man is going to give his wealth, dispense his wealth to servants who have no mentality on how to manage it. You remember the story? Now, I'm not going to unpack it in detail, but you know what happened. Two of them invested and one buried it. Is, is this, you're remembering now? And it seemed rather severe, didn't it? the response when the master returns and he he does the vetting, he does the accounting and he discovers that one of them, rather than putting the money to work, had buried it. And why did he do that? Do you remember why he did that? I think we've, we've missed the whole point of this parable as well. Because most of the time when I've heard this parable taught, it is us just getting slapped around by not making good decisions with what we have. Sound familiar to anybody? Is that the way you've heard it interpreted? Yeah. I think the real crux of the story, which it all, all the parables were, was God trying to shift man's understanding of God's true nature. So what did this guy say? What was his excuse? Which an excuse is nothing more than a lie wrapped up in an alibi. That's all it is. You got your excuses, I've got mine. But I've, anybody else would like to get on board with this? That, hey, listen, I'm tired of the excuses. I'm tired why it happened. It should have happened. That person, come on now. Stop projecting. Because wherever you go, you're going to be there. Right? 
So what was his response? He said, I knew that you were an austere or a hard man. Did the parable say, did Jesus say anything about the man being austere or hard? It didn't say that, but that was his perception of him, which equals our perception of God. So you think that he didn't know when you had a windfall that you would mismanagement. Do you, do you think that he didn't know that you would make certain decisions that would cause financial reverse for you? Do you think he didn't know that? We still, you know, the, the other day, as much as I've studied the topic of grace, I was out playing golf with my son. And uh, you know how your mind works. Maybe yours doesn't work this way. I mean, I'm minding my own business and my mind starts beating me up. Over all the things I could have done and I should have done and all the things I failed at. And I'm just trying to have a good time playing golf with my son. And I mean, I'm just ambush. And in that moment, I heard him whisper to me. He said, you're just beginning to understand the scope of my grace. I want you to stand. Now I want you to hold your hands out like this, if you will. Just hold your hands out like this. <clears throat> Lord, we do this presenting our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. And we know the imagery behind that as the priest would offer the, the animal Lord, to be consumed by the fire. Not a, not a fire, Lord, of vengeance, but a fire of your all-consuming love. So in my hands, Lord, right now, I offer to you that which seems to be so little, so insignificant. Whatever it is, if it has to do with your finances, if it has to do with your lack of education, your lack of training, your lack of opportunity, your, your resume is, you know, whatever. I offer that to you. Now multiply it. I multiply it. Lord, take me back. Take me back, if you will. And let me replay. Let me replay not all of the horror flicks in my head, but let me replay all the times where in the smallest things, you brought a breakthrough. I do. Lord, I, I want to, if, if I say it to no one else, I speak it into the atmosphere. Uh, on my way to work in the morning, I will talk about what the Lord has done. I will talk about, I will remember, I will remember, as you said over and over to your children, I will remember. I just, you know, I'm crazy enough to believe that if we can have this simple shift in our understanding, that for everybody in this room, things would begin to change. Things would begin to change. I'm going to suggest something else to you. And I didn't do what I did in the beginning by saying what I brought is free for the taking. I didn't do it because of that. 
maybe what God is challenging you to do this week is to give something away that cost you something. Now I know what that's like. To give something. See, because what he's doing is showing you how you're still holding on. You're holding on. Give something away that really cost you something that is real value to you. Do that, and I think in doing that, in your release, you are also releasing and connecting with the story of abundance. Amen. So in closing, can we just sing this chorus? Oh, we, you know it well. <clears throat> we've, uh, we've sung it for so many years in the charismatic church, but I just think it really fits appropriately right now. All to Jesus I
but I didn't mean it. not only by the blood of the Lamb, but by the word of our testimony. And we all got one. So we thank you that when we step out of this building this morning, when we take a step over that threshold, turn the world up around us, the magnificent nature of your creation, turn it up, Lord, to high definition. Let us see it. Let us sense it. Let us turn our frequency toward it. And to know that when we come in resonation with that, that everywhere we go, there is more than enough. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Josh.